so this is the essentially final module for nutrition. Uh, I want you to think about all of the other modules we've gone through thus far. And it's been intentional, not only what we've been talking about, but the order, right? So we started off with variability. The idea was, can we be more robust in a ever-changing, unpredictable environment? Then we went through duality, that there's always a counterbalancing force in nature, that there's an up and a down, that if we are expending more or taking in less, there's always going to be a counter to that. Then we talked about metabolism, and we went into a lot of different areas on that, which was a great prelude to our systems. But with metabolism, it's a laggard indicator for all of the other stuff, i.e. systems, that are working either properly or improperly. But really getting down to, as we talked about it with Rob, was cellular function and can we metabolize energy efficiently or not? Bottom line. Then we moved into our systems, the nervous system, or really what governs the entire autonomic and and really overall like the ability to move and function and think and remember and we talked about our cardiovascular system, how we deliver energy, how we remove waste, how we function from a standpoint from the heart out. And we talked about the endocrine system. And that really went into this, this deep dive into these counteracting measures and duality. And maybe it was my, my assertion that I really wanted to prove that the, the yin and the yang or the opposite ends of the spectrum and duality really exists through a hormonal standpoint. We moved into immune system, which again, you know, like as we start to talk about all things that there's going to be a counteracting force. So if we do too much too long, that it's going to be counterproductive if we're eating foods that are generally bad for us without any regard to, uh, with only regarding their their macronutrient structure or their caloric in, caloric amount, then yeah, it's going to have some sort of impact. And then we've talked about macronutrients, these, the big three, and I talked about potentially a fourth in there, so make sure you go back there and listen to that, get that a fourth, just just, uh, just a little sneak, uh, sneak peek, it was fiber. And we talked about nutrient timing, and we talked about timing of those macronutrients are, are really important. But now we're going to come into the screening. And why I put screening last is because I think you need to have a foundational knowledge of what we need to be looking for. So let's back, let's back up my career of where I've really come full circle on things like body composition effect. I, like most bodybuilding background, I really enjoyed the building of your body um, from a muscular standpoint, trying to decrease your fat, uh, having as aesthetically a pleasing of a body as you possibly can, um, really in the bodybuilding from a context of it was a self-serving but also really interesting dynamic of educating yourself on how to change the course of how you look and how you feel, right? And then that, that expands out into your work in college environment and 
seem to be one of the few people that are counting your macros or checking your body comp. So organically, that kind of puts you into this position where you're the now, you're the person in charge of nutrition. And I've kind of taken on that title ever since, right? So at Georgia Tech, USC, uh, I've had, I had a staff, a staff member who we had on the show uh, for macronutrients, Will Greenberg, uh, take the lead on it, but I helped him out quite a bit. And then now at my current place, Allegiant, where and I'm kind of like in this different, I'm in a different role because I'm not necessarily as much boots on the ground, but I've definitely strong influence on the environment. So for me, you know, when I look at nutrition from the, young bodybuilding focused, all right, let's just look at your macros to now this person that has an influence on their environment at a systemic level and saying, okay, if I just tell someone to eat a certain amount of macros or calories, what is the regression to the mean, right? So if I have, I mean, roughly six, 700 people that I'm working with on a weekly basis, if I say things like, hey, we should be in a deficit all the time, or if I say things like, hey, we should be eating a gram of protein per pound of body weight all the time, what is the actual actual median response to that? And on the other end, it's, okay, I'm going to text this athlete at 5 a.m., one, make sure that they're up for lift, but two, make sure they get something to eat before we go into this conditioning session because they are a weight gain guy and they don't eat enough. And they always talk about how they don't feel good when they eat before they run. Like, well, if you're cramming in some sort of calories as you're walking over to the field for a conditioning session, that probably shouldn't feel good. And I'm, I, I'm telling you all this from the pretense of I, I have awarded myself a certain level of intuition and instinct about nutrition and working with athletes. And I have athletes that are, have been 2.7% body fat at 270 pounds. I'm not exaggerating. I've had first round draft picks. I've had athletes change their body body mass, 100 pounds, either weight gain or weight loss. I've had situations where people come up and say, that's the best I've ever felt in my entire life. And I've tried everything. I get into the weeds on, on blood panels and and I can look at certain things like organic acid tests and I can be as granular as just that. And then I can, on the other one, I could be as macro as, like, can I just get you on a walk and drink some water today? Like, I think that's the thing that I, I'm trying to get across here is over the course of your career, there's a certain level of knowing your audience and a certain level of knowing how to communicate, but there's also a certain level of creating realistic expectations. And where I really come, where I'm going to really come back full circle now on this nutritional, nutritional concept is the screens, all it's trying to do is make a really, 
really small target bigger. Because if you go to the module and you get into the actual first thing, I have Charles Pollockland talking about biosignature, which by the end of his career, added a couple more body compositional sites and created BioPrint. And that is a very specific measurement. And I think this creates a two-pronged approach. And you can look at the other end of the spectrum, something like precision nutrition, that's, I think, a different vector. And I've gone through Biosig, and I've utilized it quite a bit, and I think it's a profound test. And I think it has a powerful influence on its environment, if you understand it. And I say that because it's true. But when I look at something like a biosig, where I'm doing 11 sites, and I'll just rattle them off, but it goes uh, face, cheek, pec, tricep, scapula, superiliac, waist or umbilical, thigh, hamstring, knee, calf, and you start to break down each individual site and you start to go, okay, like this person's starting to lose weight. You should see that materialize in their face, right? Like losing weight starts off primarily with water and it's actually pretty ingenious. It feels weird, but it's pretty ingenious to open up with chin and essentially cheek. Because uh, you'll lose weight and that's just essentially just water, right? There's just water mass in that area. And then you start to work your way down, down the body, and you look at androgen receptor, you look at androgen production between pec and tricep, and tricep's kind of the, the most important site. And then you start to work your way around to maybe more insulinic or glucose control, so sub, subscap and, and uh, superiliac. And then you start to look at stress at the, at the Umbilical, I forgot to mention the mid-axillary for thyroid. And then you start to look at maybe androgen-estrogen conversion. So you start to look at the thigh versus the hamstring. And then you start to work your way down to more growth hormone sites like the, the knee or the calf. And, and you start to go, okay, like how, how true is this, right? And you start to break down some areas. And then you start to think, okay, well, there's some sort of models that we can compare Right, so we look at waist to hip ratio, which is a clinically proven math means of predicting cardiovascular risk, metabolic risk, etc. Because typically males start storing more body fat in their waist and abdomen area, and females in more in the lower body area. And if we have a higher distribution of fat in our in our waist umbilical area, we're typically going to be at higher risk for metabolic syndrome or met or I think it's called X now, metabolic X, right? So you have the holy trilogy of cardiovascular risk, metabolic risk, and now Alzheimer's dementia or any kind of neurological risk. And that's pretty commonly accepted, right? No one's going to argue that. And it's pretty intuitive, right? But how does that come to fruition? And why does that start to materialize? And if I do a skin caliper assessment or I start to look at a adipose tissue in that umbilical area and I start to say okay this is really high this is above 30 millimeters if you're doing skin caliper or 
a lot of people can get up to 50, 60, right? Like the, if you use a Harbinger uh, skin caliper, you have to like squeeze it all the way to actually get a good, a good pinch. You know, honestly, like, you're thinking, okay, this is bad. This is not good for this person's long-term health. You know, and you're like, okay, like, well, it's pretty dense tissue. It's fat, but it's dense. It's not like this very malleable uh, tissue like you would see potentially in the tricep, like, or like um, even the scapula to a degree, right? If they're really lean, then all these stuff becomes a lot easier, but there's like this point of diminishing returns when it starts to get like, in the middle of like this, like, I don't know, 10 to 20 millimeters is pretty pliable and pretty malleable to grab. And then when it gets to like a really high amount, like plus 30, you're grabbing with a full, full hand and the tissue feels really dense and it's, it's hard, right? It's like, it's like really, really like accumulated fat tissue. But with that midsection and if you ever really want to get into some other areas like Lyle McDonald and even guys like Phil Lerney, like there's some really cool like resources talking about like beta and alpha receptor sites within the umbilical area being more prone for increasing adipose size and hypertrophy based off of cortisol and cortisol accumulating or circulating in the body, whether it's offset cortisol. I don't think there's a excess amount of cortisol. It just gets offset rhythm and making our glucose disposal or glucose control worse it. And all of a sudden we start to store excess levels of fat. And we can start to look at potentially, you know, like non-alcoholic liver, uh, fatty liver disease. We can start to look at all this other stuff. If we're storing a lot of fat in this tissue over there, we're probably getting a really poor response overall. And what that impacts is usually cortisol's got this, it got this relationship with testosterone, you know, and if we're, we're looking at cortisol as this, this catabolic hormone, and then we look at testosterone as this anabolic hormone, well, if we have high circulating cortisol times we don't want it, probably means we have low circulating testosterone. And then the downstream effects from that, uh, like, okay, well, what does that look like from a pack and tricep standpoint? And Truth be told, like I, I find it always interesting that tricep is the, the number one site that determines all the other sites. Because uh, there's really not much, I guess, evidence outside of Charles's, like, Charles's perspective of where, like, if tricep, tricep leanness is associated with testosterone or androgen production. But... It does feel intuitive when you think about it, because when you start to do these a lot, it's the it's the fellows that are working out quite a bit that are sub three millimeters on their tricep, and you start to go, okay, well that's a consistent trend. There's more muscle mass and there's less fat mass there. We should be storing very little fat in that area, and if we are, it's a systemic problem. It's not working out enough, or eating too much, or eating too much of the bad things. And then it goes all into the other areas. So we have 11 site body composition assessment. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have just a, almost a questionnaire, almost a inventory of how that person is reacting to their environment. Almost a, like a long gradual coaching thing. And with precision nutrition, it's making these subtle yet seemingly 
unnoticeable changes over a long period of time and kind of meeting them where they're at. And I know both ends of the spectrum here. Like, I really do. Because I know that, hey, for certain people, there's going to be a slow, slow build and not trying to give them this, like, shock and awe to gradually get them more and more bought in. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's this, I work with type A people all the time, and I work with really highly motivated people all the time, and they want the brutal hard data. And you tell them what they need, and they are more motivated to do it. And that's where it comes into the nutritional screen, right? And working with million-dollar athletes, I have a really strong, strong desire to improve their body comp, to improve their ability to earn and produce. On the other end, I have 40-year-old dads that are just trying to be able to be more functional with their, with their children. On the other end, I have people that are, are obese or, or extreme ectomorphs. And as you go through it, the psychological aspect of this can't be ignored. You really can't throw the baby out in the bathwater on it's all numbers. It's just get their body comp and just cram whatever it is we need to do in their face. It just doesn't work that way. As we look through the nutritional screen, which I have laid out here, I titled in the module endocrine, cardiovascular, nervous, and immune. And that's the other part. The reason why I put that in there is because for me, that's how I broke up these measurements. For me, that's how I want to really lean in on improving this person's function and overall body composition and aesthetic. And it goes back to the original line, just make a small target picker. And a lot of times it's, I just got to pick the area that has the most low-hanging fruit. A lot of times it's a very like sequenced vector of body comp all the way out to trying to figure out a immune system. Before I get into each one of these and looking at this from the individual basis and how it connects to that module that we've talked about before, you know, think about the really the big the two big ones that we started this whole thing with. Variability. Are we prepared for ever changing, unpredictable environments? And then duality. There's always a countermeasure. So if I've been in a surplus for a while, we need to be in a deficit for a while, and vice versa. So the first one is looking at endocrine variability. And if you go to duality, if you even look at our metabolism uh, module, and then obviously our endocrine system module, kind of working in these duality type framework, anabolic versus catabolic. And I put in there for, for this like, Vector, if they're below 10 for males and below 20 for females, generally speaking, they're probably in a pretty good spot from a, a, a body composition standpoint. I know there's some folks that would say that arguably should be lower, um, and depending on what they're using, right? So we use uh, utilize ultrasound at our setting, so those numbers are slightly higher, so 12, maybe even 22. But for males, if you're below 10, let's just say that's the norm between between a bod pod or a uh, skin caliper or an ultrasound, that's somewhere in that like median of those numbers or the, is gonna be sub 10 for males. 
means you're probably pretty active. It means you're probably pretty good or conscious about what you're eating. It means you're doing it on a consistent cadence. You got pretty good self-control. Like it's just, it is what it is. You're a good spot. You manage, right? Like it doesn't necessarily need a huge intervention because it's going a lot right, right? Like don't, don't screw up something that's working. But what I would argue is seeing that trend over a longer sample, right? So if, if they have sub 10% body fat all year, that's even more true. If you knew that that was a very hyper-motivated situation and it evolved organically into getting 7%, then you probably need to look at that and say, okay, what are they gonna look like that in a month? What are they gonna look like that in three months? But that's your endocrine system, right? And go through that biosig, but looking through those individual sites and their interrelation. And for me now, I just really look at, I really lean in on things like tricep and pec. I really look at subscap and super iliac. I really look at umbilical and thigh. Um, and mid-ax is just kind of thrown in there because that's part of the seven site. But I really look at those six as the predominant ones because those have the most weight for me. And I, I really try to lean in on those because quite frankly, that's where it's going to really get the most bang for your buck. Like if someone has high pack or high tricep, you need to be working out and you need to be working out more consistently and you need to be strength training. If someone has high super iliac or high subscap, you need to, eat less overall carbs and you need to be able to time those carbs better, i.e. post-workout. If someone has high umbilical, okay, you need to go to bed earlier and you need to stay in bed longer. If someone has has high thigh, okay, we gotta talk about xenoestrogens and we gotta talk about eating foods that have a lot of plastics in them and toxins in them and stop having as much perfumes in your stuff or maybe drinking better water or honestly, eating more fiber. You know, people always golf it like, oh, I recommend eight servings of vegetables regardless of athlete or non-athlete. I make, I'm recommending eight servings of vegetables to get 40, 50 grams of fiber. That's probably one of the best strategies along with hydration to remove toxins aside from removing them entirely. So if we start to break down you know, your body comp, it just gives me some sort of conversation talking point. You know, and I can look at those ratios relatively, even if someone's sub, sub 10, they're going to have one site higher than the other. It just is what it is. Probably always going to be umbilical. So just say that. Just go, okay, like, let's talk about your sleep. Like, you know, the chances are if they're sub 10, there's not a lot to talk about because they're doing a lot right. But you can always talk about sleep. You really can. All right. Then we go into our blood pressure. And to me, I really look at this as probably one of the lowest hanging fruits I think we could all do. Um, I think we should all do a better job of collecting blood pressure on a consistent basis. So it's like, if you really break it down, it's as good as things like resting heart rate and HRV. And it gives us the whole other like atherosclerotic effect. Like what is the actual risk of the vascular tissue being inelastic and creating a lot of pressure? And you could break it down to those two numbers of diastolic, systolic as that second number, the one underneath the 
the, uh, the I guess the what's that called the numerator. That's the number that's more connected to the nervous system. So if you have a high, high, high overall blood pressure, and you look at it from from the perspective of, all right, I have 140 over 90, and then I look at that diastolic and I say, that diastolic is 90. That probably means there's some sort of nervous system or autonomic nervous system dysfunction, that we are not as good at relaxing as we should. And if I'm a betting man, if you have a high diastolic blood pressure, you will assuredly have a high resting heart rate and a very low HIV. I'm just saying that. And I say that from the context of, you probably get that simple, simple connection right then and there if you just know how to connect those two dots. Now, blood pressure is something that as we start to break down and we start to look at over a longer period of time, you, know, you want to gain the rapport or respect of the medical community, understand the tests that they're doing on a recurring basis. Like, you ever go to the hospital? How many times do you get your blood pressure checked? That's their biggest red flag, their biggest signal. Blood pressure changes, they freak out. And we're seeing this on a way earlier, way more upfront basis. And I wouldn't golf at it. Like, I wouldn't say, oh, wow, 130 over 90. It is what it is. You're just probably dehydrated or tired. Or you're probably stressed. Like, why? Like, that's not good. Your cardiovascular health is, is poor right now. You know, and then I think about it, too. Of like, I've seen a lot of people, maybe sub 10%. Who have 140 over 100, 130 over 90. And you ask yourself, like, how? Maybe they just got great genetics and they don't work out that hard or they don't do much cardiovascular work. Uh, maybe on their anabolic steroids or something that's going to almost fast track a lot of these things. Okay, like, I got to start to look, dive deeper into that. Okay, like, either you need to start giving more blood, and that helps a lot in terms of the overall, like, uh, replenishing and recycling of hemoglobin and, and removing things like iron in the in that in that system. Iron oxidizes, it's good to know. And then I look at through the other point of I need to be more conscientious of eating heart healthy foods like high fiber foods, there's fiber again, drinking more water. And then just simple cardiovascular exercise. You know, that zone two world. Like I can improve my overall function of le- left ventricular function, pump more blood out for stroke volume. And I've actually, if you guys go into our module on training of energy system development, I talk extensively about stroke volume is still easily one of the most important things. And that's related to how much blood you pump out per beat. And the more blood you pump out, the more oxygen you deliver, the more CO2 you remove, the more capillaries you develop, more mitochondria you develop. I shouldn't say we develop more mitochondria, we develop more efficiency, we might actually create better mitochondria, better we function. We recover faster during anaerobic work, we recover, we sleep better, we get a lot more stuff out of it, right? So I would look at blood pressure as one of the most important things you can mass measure. Then I look at nervous system, and I look at that through resting heart rate. A lot of people do have HRV, 
So if you do have HRV, that's as good, if not better, some, according to some. Uh, if I look at it from very simple, if you're resting heart rate or ambient heart rates plus 60, you probably have some sort of sympathetic overdrive, um, which is going to have some downstream effects elsewhere, right? Talk about that umbilical area for body comp. Talk about that diastolic for blood pressure. But if I look at it from that person has above 60 and they're relatively quote unquote healthy, like exercising three times a week and they're doing stuff, they got a lot of stress going on. You know, like they are extremely stressed out and we need to address that. But if they're below 60, I wouldn't get too too enamored with that number. This is, I'm kind of kicked the goalpost out, but you know, I, I genuinely think healthy, active people should be closer to 50 BPM as opposed to this like 59. And I look at that from the context of stress, cardiovascular fitness, overall function, and we talked a lot about that in the, in the duality aspect, but like you look at it from if your median or if your average is in between this like resting that's now 60 to 70 and your let's say diastolic blood pressure is like 90 or and then you're 140 over 130 over 90 i think that lowers your max heart rate you can achieve because you just don't have the function or the, the fitness to do that so if you're take the traditional 220 minus your age and i'm 40 let's just say i'm 40 i'm really 42 but easier math that's 180 and then my resting heart rate, just to again, keep it simple, is 80. That window is 80 to 180. It's 100 beats I can play with in between with training. If I just go ahead and I improve my cardiovascular fitness and I can drop the floor so I get down to 50, and then I can increase the ceiling because people with better fitness can have more tolerable higher upper max heart rates, so even take away the equation, Let's say at 40, I can get to 190 and 200 comfortably. I get improved my beats, my my beats per minute window from 90 or from 80 to 180 to 50 to 190. That's a 40 beat per minute differential. Just take the median of that. All of a sudden, now I have a lot more wiggle room to play with when I'm training and I recover better and I have a lot more of this systemic impact just simply having a lower arrested heart rate and better blood pressure. Now the last one I talk about, and I don't do this a whole lot to be honest, but there is pH strips or even looking at, even looking at how much ketones you're producing. Uh, you can do this through saliva and urine what is the actual acidity of your body? And chances are, if you're very acidic, you probably got a poor immune function going on. I know that might feel like this, like, uh, I don't know, crunchy type of, of, wow, you're finished with that. And it's not really that much peer-reviewed, but I'll be honest, man. James Laval talked to me about this extensively, and I'm convinced. I'm convinced from things like gut dysbiosis. I'm, things, I'm convinced like people who don't hydrate well enough. 
I'm convinced by people who take a lot of acidic foods, like, you know, and this is what I talk about with folks that just fit your macros of like, you're just checking boxes and eating carbs, fats, and protein. Generally speaking, those are probably all acid because you're not going to include a lot of fibrous fruits and vegetables. You're not going to be focusing on foods that improve overall digestive function and immune function. You're probably going to be in a really, really acidic state. And you see this manifest into, like, again, gut dysbiosis and compromised recovery, et cetera, et cetera. But a traditional American diet is wildly similar to a bodybuilding diet in its lack of attention to autoimmunity and its lack of attention to things that are going to create more systemic health. It's a very, like, binary, black and white, number-based thing. And I see people with relatively clean diets, quote-unquote, come in and have very high acid levels, like like eight. And you're like, okay, that's not good, <laughs> you know? Um, I'm sorry, six, and or aggressively alkaline, which is another conversation to be had, uh, and nine. And you start to think about it from the context of, this isn't where I want this to be. Most people should be walking around relatively in a neutral, neutral state of this seven to eight pH. Um, you know, why is that? And I'd say you could probably go into organic acids at this point to be a little bit more dialed in and looking at the function of your Krebs cycle, function of your metabolites coming off that Krebs cycle. Uh, you could look at something along the lines of, of just uh, get a really into the weeds on this stuff and do a fecal sample and looking at the gut diversity. Um, my point being on all this like final one immune system is, I think a very simple one is just maybe body temperature. It's probably really easy to look at. Um, I think there's a lot of ones we can dive into immune system. And I would say that if we're neglecting the conversation about immune system, it's all about nervous system, cardiovascular system, endocrine system. I think there's a big missed opportunity, right? So I typically use pH because I feel like it's the less, least friction. It's the, it's the most, it's the most cost effective. You just simply just hold this on your, just put this under your tongue for 10 seconds. And then from there I get a readout, but I could look at gut diversity. I could look at organic acid. I could look at, I could look at body temperature, right? And I think these wearables are getting really good about predicting potential sickness based off of core body temperature over a course of a period of hours and days. These are all things we can consider. We can actually look at the, the CO2 levels of bodies too. It's another great kind of indicator. There's just some compelling research off this. Um, if you do something like a body, uh, bioelectrical impedance, which I have my opposition to from a body composition standpoint, but intra-extracellular fluid. Another great way to kind of look at this. Like, uh, I think it's called the phase angle, like um, between bioelectrical impedance and look at your water content over a period of time. Again, your overall immune function is right there to kind of take into consideration. So body comp in itself is the central theme of this, but what does that mean? It develops a vector for me, but the other end of the spectrum, I really need to be conscious off of is that what's best for this person in front of me? Yes or no? And I want to start to set up a framework that allows them to make progress when they can make progress. And we'll talk about that with the practical aspect. But this nutritional screen 
slash body composition is is really how I create better either micro or like I'm on the ground floor interacting with clients and athletes or macro that I'm creating a, a, a framework for people to to navigate from my coaches that work for me to communicate to their clients and athletes on a larger basis of what we should be saying consistently. Because I have the power of influence when I'm working with someone from one to one to troubleshoot and work through it. Now I have the power of influence from being using mediums to communicate what I think is the best way to recover and get the most from our workouts as well as getting better results body composition wise. And I look at that screen now, just like we talked about the movement screen, as this foundational piece to make changes regardless of your position. All right, so I'm going to pause here. Let's take a second to look through the module. I think it's going to be helpful. Um, obviously, go through Charles's video. I think it's, I mean, again, he was such an innovator and so important. And instead of trying to find all the faults in it, I would say try to find the things that make sense to you that we can cooperate with other things like waist to hip ratio and and cortisol as well as glucose control and going to this next level of it gives me a conversation that's all i need just give me an in and i can always talk about sleep and i can always talk about glucose control and insulin control i can always talk about that we should be trying to strive to eat more fibrous rich foods and remove xenoestrogens and all these things. If males are storing body fat in the lower body, that's not good. We know that. If women are storing body fat in their upper body, their umbilical area, that's not good. Why is that happening? We have to ask these questions. All right. See you guys next week. Make sure you guys are going through the modules because it's so important because I just went through a lot.